TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. The end of the world is just the beginning. Mapping the collapse of globalization. The author Peter Zion in conversation with Ian Bremmer and Sam Harris on the end of global order. If you listened to TUC Radio as far back as the 90s, You remember programming critical of the rise of globalization, NAFTA, and the World Trade Organization. My source was the International Forum on Globalization. Today, some of the consultants who are advising business, finance, and the military are warning that we're heading into an era of deglobalization with guaranteed disorder and scarcity. Thanks to Sam Harris for hosting a debate on some of the causes of deglobalization on his podcast, Making Sense. Harris is a neuroscientist, philosopher, and New York Times best-selling author. Peter Zion founded the consulting group Zion on Geopolitics, His clients include energy corporations, business associations, and the U.S. military. Ian Bremer is president and founder of the Eurasia Group, a research firm advising investors and business decision makers. Here's Sam Harris on his podcast. It was published July 14, 2022. Today we're talking about the end of the world as we know it. That really is not much of an exaggeration. Because today I'm speaking with Peter Zion and Ian Bremmer. Uh, and we're focusing on Peter's new book titled The End of the World is Just the Beginning, which is a fairly dire look at the implications of deglobalization and demographic collapse. As you'll hear, it is a bracing and fairly alarming picture of guaranteed disorder and scarcity. And uh, there's also some discussion about the significance of the war in Ukraine and, and other recent developments there. Anyway, I found it fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. And I bring you Peter Zion and Ian Bremmer. Peter, Ian, thanks for joining me. It's great hey. to be here. Good to be with you guys. Peter, the, the occasion for this conversation is your fairly astounding new book, the title of which is The End of the World is Just the Beginning. One of the, the more provocative and unequivocal things you say in the book, among many provocative and unequivocal things, is that, quote, the world of the past few decades is the best the world is ever going to be in our lifetime. And so basically, your, your claim that surfaces throughout the book is that the world as we have known it ended more or less in 2019, and there is no going back. And globally speaking, more or less everything that matters is going to get worse, and it's going to be worse for the rest of our lives. You posit that there'll be islands of relative advantage, and, and America is going to do much better than China, for instance. But basically, the sky really is falling on your account. So I would, I'd love you just to jump in and give us a, a first pass at this argument. Of course. So uh, let's start at the beginning. Before World War II, global trade in the way that we think of it today did not exist. 
There was no manufacturer's trade, certainly not supply chains. Energy and agriculture tended to be kept in-house. If you wanted something, you went out and you took it, colonized it, you expanded into empire, and those empires clashed. Those clashes brought us the destruction of the world wars and the end of the imperial era. At the end of that conflict, the Americans proposed a new way of functioning. Instead of everyone having to have their own sequestered, protected, militarized, convoyed systems, the U.S. would use its navy, which was the only one of size to survive the war, and would protect everyone's commerce everywhere at any time, no matter who you wanted to partner with, where you wanted to go, where you wanted to sell. If, in exchange, you would serve as cannon fodder in the Cold War. We bribed up an alliance, and it worked. But the Cold War ended 30 years ago, and we've been backing away ever since. And in every presidential election, we have gone with the more populist candidate, and I would not exclude Biden from that statement. We're done. And at the time that the Ukraine war started, we actually had fewer troops stationed abroad than at any time since Reconstruction. So the American commitment to this sort of structure, which was always a security structure for us, is now gone. Second, that structure changed the way we live. In a pre-World War II, pre-urbanized, pre-industrial system, everyone lived on the farm and kids were free labor, so you had a lot of them. But when globalization happened, urbanization happened, and everyone took those industrial and service jobs and manufacturing jobs in the cities, and when you move into a condo, kids are no longer free labor. They're just a really expensive headache. Adults aren't dumb, so we had fewer of them. You fast forward that 75 years, and it's not that we're running out of children. That happened 40 years ago. It's that we're running out of adults. And we do not have an economic theory for what a world where the retirees outnumber the children and the adults looks like. But we're about to live in that in the naked now. It feels good until now, because as you age, if you're part of a global system, if you have a lot of people in their 40s and 50s, you know, people who have literally been in their careers their whole lives, well, they're very productive. But they've got to export that product in order to make it work. And in a globalized system, you can export from the more advanced aged economies into the younger ones. But that only works until you hit mass retirement. And at that point, you don't only lack consumption, you also lack production and investment. And that is a position where the Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Italians, the Belgians, the Germans, and more are all edging into in the first half of this decade. And there is no system that we are aware of, even theoretically, where that works. So we are now at the end of what has been the greatest period of economic growth in human history. And now we get to figure out what's next. So there, there are two main pieces here. There, there, there's the claim about deglobalization, and then the claim about demographics. I'm wondering. Maybe let's take deglobalization first. That seems to be sure. a, a very simple claim. Why is it happening? And you're claiming that America long ago decided to stop being the world's cop and pull back. And I, I'm wondering what Ian thinks of that, but. Let's just say that's true, and it's been true, and it currently is true. That's the kind of thing that could change, right? And that would upend at least one crucial part of this thesis. What if everyone who mattered read your book next week and and thought, oh, we have to arrest this slide toward the brink. We have to secure a globalized supply chain and make the world safe for commerce once again. 
Why couldn't that happen? Well, let's start with why it can't happen, and then we can go into why it won't happen. Mm. First, the can't. If you want to patrol the global oceans, you need to make sure that there's one overarching naval power who has the capacity to do it, and there are not challengers to the throne who could potentially disrupt it. The U.S. Navy is potent, but it is designed to smash countries, not protect trade anymore. We have 11 supercarriers. Another three are on their way. Fantastic tools for military power projection. But if you want to patrol the global oceans, you need destroyers. I would say you probably need about 800 of them. We have 70. And half of those are dedicated to protecting the, the carriers. It's also the 1960s anymore. The Soviets were never great at anything naval. But now there's a wider range of middle powers, of which China is one, who would like to have their own sphere of influence in terms of maritime power. And that is just not something that works in terms of unrestricted merchant activity. So even if the United States wanted to do this, we no longer have the capacity to do it. And nor is there a country or a coalition of countries that have the naval power that would be necessary to build some sort of Pax global system. In terms of why it won't happen, the United States politically has moved on. And part of what made globalization work is that for the Americans, globalization was a security pact, not an economic one. Everyone else got the economic benefits. We got to be able to write everybody's security policies. That was the deal. Mm. You do that for 70 years and economics change in the home country. And so we have seen the, the gradual departing of manufacturing, for example, from American shores to the wider world. We have seen countries that normally could not have built the institutional or physical infrastructure or industrial plant be able to do so because of global finance. And we've seen other players come into the market in terms of energy and agriculture that couldn't have done so in the imperial era except as colonies. They're all independent countries now. And there's some resentment in the United States. This is part of the rise of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, part of the return of populism to the core of our political debates. The idea that the United States has gotten a raw deal, even though the deal is one we made, even though it's one we pioneered. And the idea that the United States is going to build out a navy so it can bleed and die so that the Chinese can import raw materials and export machined products, that was always a dubious line. And so here mm. we are at the end of the system. So uh, let me jump in. Yeah, uh, please. And, and let, me, let me say, first of all, that I think it's appropriate, actually, big picture, I should say that Peter and I agree on much more than we disagree on. We've known each other for a long time. Uh, I read the book a few months ago. Uh, I liked it quite a bit. I think this is going to be more about nuance and deep conversation uh, uh, that elucidates as opposed to fiery disagree with each other on everything. I will say that to the extent that we disagree, we probably disagree a lot more on the deglobalization piece and how far it goes than we do on demographics. Where we are now is a big question about deglobalization. I think one thing that's very interesting is the tension in this book, it's tension with Peter's argument, is that he said we just lived through the most staggering and extraordinary sort of 50 years that the world has ever had, and now it's over. But at the same time, he said that part of the reason that the Americans aren't going to do this and don't want to do this is because so many Americans feel like globalization, this wonderful period, was such a raw deal for them. And those things are, I mean, I'm not trying to be too cute here, but those things, they overlap, but they don't overlap perfectly. So we need to recognize that actually globalization was an enormous benefit 
for a certain number of Americans, an enormous economic benefit for a certain number of people and banks and multinational corporations that were largely had shareholders in the advanced industrial democracies, but that the the, the middle classes and the working classes in those same countries were largely hollowed out. And so globalization wasn't such an amazing time for those people for the last 50 years. And Thomas Piketty has written about that. And a lot of people have written about that. And that's why you're getting all of this populism and anti-establishment sentiment in the US. So there's an argument to be made there. A second argument to be made is that deglobalization is not a switch. We have had almost unfettered period of globalization for the last 50 years. And I have been a staggering enthusiast for it. And frankly, so has Peter, um, in the sense that we know that we've created a global middle class. And we know that there's been unprecedented amounts of human development and wealth and factfulness. And you can read that wonderful book by Hans Rosling, who just departed us a few years ago, and you can see all those numbers. That's great. But we aren't right now in one period of deglobalization. I would argue that there are three separate types of deglobalization that are presently happening. They are different and they are constrained. The first is Russia and Russia's being deglobalized and decoupled from the developed world because they invaded Ukraine. If they hadn't, that wouldn't be happening, as we've seen from the Europeans and their energy policy over the last 10, 20 years. A second deglobalization is between the United States and China but it is relatively limited to areas that are considered to be critical for national security. Those are defined differently between the United States and China. And a lot of other countries around the world, including the Europeans and the Asians, want none of it. So even the Japanese who are deeply concerned about national security tensions with China, and we saw that with Abe, and of course, we now see that with Kishida, want to ensure that they can continue to do more and more and more business with the Chinese. The Chinese feel the same way. So there's a constraint there in the same way that you feel that constraint from much of the private sector in the United States. And then finally, there's this every nation for itself, America first, India first, Malaysia first, which is this knee-jerk reactionary populism to bits of globalization not working for parts of your populations. And that's absolutely everywhere, but it doesn't have a lot of power. And as a consequence, vested interests with a lot of money do everything they can to provide lip service, but not actually move policy so far and so fast. So I guess I am saying that I think that the broad dynamics that Peter identifies as to this tipping point from unfettered globalization to something that feels a lot more challenging, I agree with that. But I, I'm much less sharp on globalization to deglobalization. I think it's more nuanced. Um, I think the transition is is going to it's going to take longer, and it's also going to have different effects in different parts of the world. I, finally, I would point out that I don't believe that we are in a Cold War with the Chinese. I'm not saying Peter does. He doesn't say that in the book. I also don't believe we're heading for one. In the hmm. same way that between the Americans and the Soviets, we had this mutually assured destruction that prevented us from getting into a hot war. I think the incredible amount of integration between the U.S. and the Chinese economies, never mind the Chinese economy and every other economy and the American economy and every other economy, actually provides very strong guardrails that really does limit our capacity to get into a cold war between the U.S. and China. And ultimately, that makes me more optimistic that the fact that the Americans and the Chinese have very different political systems and economic systems that have incompatibilities 
and they have military strategies on some issues that are clearly zero sum, that ultimately their economic shared interests, as well as their coming climate shared interests, and even their proliferation of dangerous technologies coming shared interests, make me less pessimistic about the next 10, 20 years geopolitically than Peter is from a global perspective, though not so much for the U.S. in his book. Right. Peter, what, what, are, what is your, your response to Ian? I would say when Ian and I first met, what was that, nine years ago, eight years ago? Yeah, something yeah, like that. yeah. What he just laid out was one of my scenarios, that uh, this could happen quickly, this could happen over a long period of time, there could be a transition period. Uh, events of the last eight years, however, have changed my mind on that. I've seen significant short-sightedness in foreign policy making in the United States and Europe, but most of all in China. I've seen a collapse of China's institutional capacity to process information leading to ever and ever worse problems. And now we've got a little bit better demographic data that has come out of China, which is truly horrific. Uh, it's Actually, it's come out since the book published just a month ago. And we're now looking at a Chinese population that's less than half of what it is today as early as 2050. And in that sort of environment, China's just not competitive in anything. And that assumes there are no interruptions to the flows of stuff into China. So I... I've lost track of the number of clients that have come to me in a panic and wondering when things are going to go back to 2019, whether it's because of Trump or because of China. And I really don't have a lot of good news for them anymore. And just in the last 48 hours, I am very concerned about Germany's role. Now that Nord Stream is offline, we don't know if it's going back online. The last of the four pillars that support German industrialization manufacturing are in the process of crumbling. We have become so vulnerable in the last eight years, and everything has become so exposed. And just the bedrock that allows globalization to function, the idea that materials, energy, food, and manufactured products can just flow effortlessly, that's all stopped. And when I look at a country with a terminal demography who has no control over its energy or its machine inputs, it does not take much of a breath to knock that over. And I think we're going to see in very real time, in just the next three months, just how bad this can get for Germany very quickly. And if we've got Germany and China in a degree of economic duress at more or less the same time, but for different reasons, I don't see how we pull out of this. I would love to be wrong. I would love for there to be a transition period where we have a chance to plan. But everything has gone so far with no mitigation that I think we're well past the point of no return there. Okay, I, I, that's one I definitely feel more optimistic about. And look, I, I accept the point that there are a lot of corporates out there that are a little unmoored and a little untethered by things that have happened geopolitically in the world that they were not thinking about, were not expecting. But let's, let's talk about Nord Stream. My understanding from the German government and from talking to a lot of people sort of inside this issue and our energy practice is that worst case scenario, if the Russians were to completely cut off Nord Stream, so nothing more after these 10 days are, are over, I guess that's July 21st, it is that the Germans would be in a mild but not severe recession. You're probably talking about a 2 to 3% GDP contraction for one year compared to what they are presently expecting. There would be a significant amount of consumer uh, stress that would require the Germans to pass on significant subsidies to the corporations and or benefits to the population that breaks their existing fiscal rule. 
They have plans for how they would do that. I have been stunned, Peter, with how quickly the Germans in totality have been willing to move on every single issue that they can to get a diversification away from Russian fossil fuels. They've got mobile LNG terminals that should be ready by winter, end of the year, early next year, absolute max. They've did a lot of efficiency measures they're taking. There's you know, a diversification from the United States, from Qatar, from other countries. It's been shocking to me how quickly, and depending on who you talk to, they think that either by the end of this coming year or maximum by the end of the following, um, that they will no longer need any exposure to Russian fossil fuels. And no one in Germany would have said that on February 24th after the Russians invaded. I think many people listening to this might be mystified as to why Russia and Germany, why all of this has global implications. Why are we past the point of no return with respect to deglobalization? And why is any of what we're focused on in the last few minutes relevant to that question? Well, Ian, you want to split that in half? I can take the, uh, the economic side if you want to take the political and strategic. Sure. Okay. So economically, Russia is the world's largest source of fertilizer and the components that are necessary to make fertilizer, specifically 40% of potash. Russia is the world's second largest energy exporter in terms of oil, number one with natural gas, which is not just used for fuel, especially in Germany. It is used as an industrial input. It's the base of German heavy industry. It is arguably one of the top three items that the Germans have in terms of making their industry globally competitive. And so if something happens to that, you're talking about a loss of the world's third largest manufacturing base. The energy that the Russians export in oil form, that's about 5 to 8% based on who's doing the math in terms of global energy supply. And oil supply and demand mechanics are inelastic. So if you take off 5% of global energy, you can count on prices roughly doubling. There's no way we can have globally available fossil fuels without the Russians as part of the system. On the flip side, they are also major players in things like platinum and palladium and lithium and rhodium and nickel and copper. You also can't have the green transition without the Russians. So the Russians and Germans, time and time again, generation on generation, have had this weird dance where they have to be each other's largest economic partner, but they are also each other's largest strategic rival. So they move together to try to avoid a war. A conflict happens anyway. They hive apart. There's economic dislocation as a result, which the rest of the world knows as a recession or depression. And then they repeat it. They've been doing this for centuries. And this is probably the last time they do it, in my opinion, because of demographic restrictions. So who, quote, wins, unquote, this time around really matters. So that's, I, I, I'm very happy with that economic uh, explanation. And uh, on the geopolitical side, the Russians for reasons that I think are very explicable, nonetheless made an incredible misjudgment strategically when they decided to full-on invade Ukraine. I mean, they saw after 2008 in Georgia, after 2014 in Ukraine, that they didn't, they didn't have a strong and united Western response against them. After 2014, the sanctions were pretty limited. You had European heads of state all coming to visit Putin when they hosted the World Cup a couple of years later. Like, it wasn't such a big deal. And then when Biden meets with Putin a year ago in Switzerland, 
and it's Biden's agenda. He doesn't even bring up Ukraine. All he talks about is uh, the um, uh, the pipeline attack on the colonial pipeline, the cyber attack, and said that Russia, if you guys don't work on that and, and cut that out, there's going to be hell to pay. And you know what? Putin actually rolls those guys up. And not, not only does he tell them to stop engaging in cyber attacks against American critical infrastructure, but literally in the weeks before the invasion of Ukraine, he actually has a bunch of the people that were leading the cyber group that was in charge of the colonial attack, has them arrested. Nobody talks about this anymore. No. But the fact is that, that from my perspective, that was Putin telling the Americans, OK, we're going to take care of the issue that you care about. The issue we care about that you don't care about is Ukraine. And meanwhile, he's got, you know, Merkel's gone, who was the strong, you know, sort of advocate engaged with Ukraine through the Minsk Accords. Um, he's got Macron saying that NATO is brain dead and he's talking about his own way of strategic autonomy. He's got the Americans with this disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal. The Americans kind of did unilaterally. He's got Xi Jinping saying he's his best buddy on the global stage. Now, by the way, I think that if Putin had decided just to do the second phase of what he calls the special military operation. If he had just taken the Donbass and the land bridge, I, I think he might well have gotten away with it, that you wouldn't have had the expansion of NATO and the Olaf Scholz 2% of GDP and the Europeans cutting everything off. He could have gotten it right, but he thought that he had the big kahuna right there, that if he took Ukraine and took out Zelensky, that he would be able to recreate a Russian empire that he would have achieved what Solzhenitsyn was talking about and redressed the greatest humiliation of his lifetime, which was the collapse of the Soviet Union by having Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia together under one Russian empire. And that was a bridge way too far. The Ukrainians fought way too capably, and the West united and responded extremely strongly. So geopolitically, you now have a situation where not only have the Russians been decoupled from the West, even the Asians, even Japan and South Korea feel very strongly about this. And frankly, the fact that the, that the United States and allies even, you'll remember, froze Russia's assets outside that were in their jurisdictions no one thought that was even a remote possibility. They were talking about maybe you cut them off from SWIFT and you, you ended up seeing the West doing far more. I mean, you take what Peter just said about the economic side and add to that the fact that geopolitically and geostrategically, the Russians have been cut off from the West effectively permanently. As long as this regime is there, I don't see that changing. And of course, they're also in a vastly worse strategic position, security position, than they would have been if they hadn't invaded Ukraine back in February. You add all of that up, you have this com significant component of deglobalization, where for the first time in history, a G20 economy has been basically severed from the G7. We've never done that before. You heard excerpts of a discussion on deglobalization with Ian Bremmer and Peter Zion author of the just-published book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. Peter Zein is a consultant for energy corporations, business associations, and the U.S. military. Ian Bremmer is president and founder of the Eurasia Group, 
a research and consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C., London, Tokyo, Sao Paulo, Brasilia, and Singapore. These are excerpts of a discussion posted on July 14, 2022, by Sam Harris on his podcast, Making Sense. You can find the full discussion online under the title, The End of Global Order. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.